1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's interesting to see how the Lord leads. Because I was not planning to preach uh, about this text or about this subject when I went to bed Friday night. But about 3.30 in the morning, I woke up with a major league allergy attack. And started sneezing my head off. I mean, I couldn't stop sneezing. And it was at that point in the middle of the night, between Friday and Saturday, that the Spirit of God let me know that he had different plans for this morning. I had gone downstairs. I'm going to tell you all the details because I think it's fascinating. I had gone downstairs to have some Fruit Loops. How many like Fruit Loops? Say amen. Yes. See, Fruit Loops are yummy, aren't they? And I figured I need something to kind of scratch my throat because I was all itchy and nasty and whatever. I stood there in the dark, and I'm thinking about the news of the day and all that's happened and all that was going to happen the next day. And the Spirit impressed very strongly on my heart, and I don't use that term lightly, but he impressed very strongly on my heart that we needed to study this. Nothing like an allergy attack to get a message from the Holy Spirit, right? How many know that he speaks in the middle of the night when you're eating Fruit Loops? He does. He speaks in the middle of the night, and sometimes the Lord just needs to get us quiet and take away all the distractions so we can hear his voice. And I firmly believe that's what happened because he wasn't sleeping. He woke me up because he wanted to tell me something. And it's not often that you get those messages in the middle of the night, but when you do, you pay attention to them. And I debated it with him all throughout yesterday because I thought this is a hard topic and I don't know how I'm going to do it. And we have a short period of time and I'm confused, but he said do it. So I pray this morning that he'll give us clarity. I pray that he will teach us and that this will be beneficial to us. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Yesterday, the focus of the media, and from Thursday to Friday to Saturday, the focus on the media was on this quote-unquote prediction of this man in California that the world was going to end yesterday. Now, the world didn't end yesterday, and I know many of you were paying attention to that because I saw some of your posts on Facebook about how you were still here. And I think all of us recognized at the time that that was a false prediction based on faulty logic and that it was in contradiction to Jesus' words and to the word of God and it was made by someone who has been wrong before. But that didn't stop people from handing out flyers in Times Square and posting thousands of billboards around the country and literally getting in a RV and moving across the country saying goodbye to family and friends on the way and fracturing families. I read an article online on Thursday about a family that was fractured because the parents had basically sold everything and stopped saving for college and here are these teenage kids and they're saying we don't think this is going to happen and what happened to our parents. So there was a lot of confusion, a lot of division about this. Now the worst part of that is that it tends to discredit Christianity as a whole because those of us who are biblical Christians get lumped in with this man who not only set a date for the rapture but also was incorrect in his theology about the tribulation about hell and about the plan of God but the problem is the world doesn't differentiate between what he's saying and what we believe so incorrect theology gets associated with biblical theology. And judging by what I read on some of the blogs, and I was fascinated and looked at some of the comments of people reacting to this, is most people out there, at least on the sites that I was looking at, have just concluded that we're all crazy. And that none of us really knows what we're talking about. And there 
that shouldn't surprise us. There's going to be a continual mocking. There's going to be a growing disbelief about the truth of the Bible because someone has been prominent in promoting their opinion rather than going by Scripture and rather than looking at what the Bible says about the return of Christ. But listen, just because somebody misuses and manipulates the truth doesn't mean that we should discount it altogether. And what we can do as believers is we can look at the Word of God knowing that we will never understand every detail on this side of heaven. We just have to say that up front. This is too complex of a subject, and the Bible is not clear enough in terms of specificity about when this will happen for us to know every detail because the ways of the Lord are bigger than us. We're finite, we're fallible, we're sinful. We don't understand everything that's happening. So we can't stand up this morning and say, I know everything there is to know about the return of Christ. We have to acknowledge that some of that is going to be a mystery to us. However, that doesn't prevent us from learning what Scripture says. And while I don't pretend this morning, and I was getting ready this morning, I thought, I, I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm trying to teach probably four seminary classes in 40 minutes. But that's just what we're going to do this morning because we like to have fun, don't we? This is by no means, uh, here's my disclaimer, this is by no means a, dis- a complete apologetic about the rapture. What I would like to do, and what I believe the Lord's led us to do this morning, is just deal with the facts that we know from Scripture about the return of the Lord, and then address the issue very logically. Let's talk about some of the logical reasons for the rapture. Now, first and foremost, and if you're taking notes, this is what you want to write at the top. First and foremost, we know that Jesus Christ is going to return. Everybody say praise the Lord. We know that Jesus Christ is going to return. And it's interesting, the fact that that's even being debated by people, the fact that people are acknowledging this guy in California as teaching something about Christ's return means that they haven't fully dismissed the truth that Jesus actually rose from the grave. Because if Jesus is still dead this morning, why would they give any time and space to someone talking about his return? Have you thought about that? They are, they are unknowingly acknowledging that Christ is real. They're unknowingly acknowledging that Christ is alive and that it is possible at some point that he's going to come back. Now, we know that Christ is going to come back because whatever people think and however the media skews it and however people mock what happened yesterday, Jesus was unmistakably clear that he is coming back. And if Jesus says it, it's the truth, it's the word of God. John 1 says he is the word of God. So if Jesus said, I'm coming back, guess what we know? He's coming back. There's no question, there's no doubt, there's no equivocation, there's no wondering, there's no, I think it might, but I'm not sure. It is a known fact because Jesus said it will happen. Now, there are two distinct times. You're really going to have to listen this morning. Lord, help us. There there are really two distinct times when Jesus will come back. The first is in 1 Thessalonians 4, which you're going to look at in a minute, where Jesus meets believers in the sky. And he takes them away for a certain amount of time until the rest of his pattern and the rest of his plan unfolds. The second time Jesus will come back 
is when he comes to judge the earth. And in that time, which is detailed in Matthew 24 and in Acts 1, he actually will physically come down and descend to the earth at the Mount of Olives, will walk down across into Jerusalem and begin his reign on earth. Now, as far as the first event goes, the rapture, there's debate among Christians about when that's going to take place. And there's a school of thought that believes it's before the tribulation. There's a school of thought that believes it's in the middle of the tribulation. There's a school of thought that believes it's after the tribulation. The tribulation is a seven-year period of time when there will be the prospect of world peace, but Antichrist will become dominant, and there will be unthinkable horror and devastation upon the earth as part of the judgment of man's sin. Now, to go beyond that, people are all over the map in terms of their opinion about that. Some people say we're in the tribulation right now. Some people say that there's no tribulation at all. Some people say that there's no rapture at all, that Christ will only return once. I'm not telling you all that to confuse you. I'm telling you that because it shows the complexity of the issue. And I hope down the road that we'll be able to spend weeks and weeks and study this subject more in depth, not only talking about the end times, but about biblical theology as a whole. At some point, we'll do a series on biblical theology. But for the point of today, I believe the Lord simply wants us to understand the facts about the rapture and confirm what we believe. So we can not only know in advance that this prediction was wrong, but that we're also able to rationally talk to people and tell them about the hope that we have that someday Jesus is coming back. And it could be today. It could be right now. It could be in the next three seconds Jesus could return. So we have to be able to talk about this rationally, using the Word of God, and be able to explain to them the hope that we have. Now let's look at the text. We have a lot to cover, so I encourage you to write some things down this morning and really ask the Lord to help us understand. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now as to the times and the epochs, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written for you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now let's talk first of all, let's kind of divide this into two segments this morning. Let's talk first of all about what we know about the rapture from Scripture, and then we'll talk about uh, some of the specificity that we can understand about why there's logic behind the idea of the rapture. What we know about the rapture is what the Word of God is clear to tell us. And verse 17, if you look at it, is very specific in saying that those uh, believers who have died will be resurrected and they will meet Christ and then the children of God will rise up and meet Christ. Look at the words there. In the air. 
Now, that suggests that there's a kind of two-stage process, that there's some sort of delay. We have no idea how long it will be between the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the resurrection of the living in Christ. But, but there's, there's a, a differentiation between the two because that's what Scripture tells us. Now, that would indicate, seem to indicate, that this will be very visible. And we look at other texts, we'll see that this is going to be loud, that Christ is going to appear in the sky, that there's going to be a physical, bodily resurrection that takes place, and that it will uh, reinforce the fact that this is the rapture and not the second coming, because in the second coming, he's actually going to come to the earth. So there's a, a, a difference there. There's a, there's a distinguishing mark between the events. The first event is we meet him in the sky. The second event is he gathers all the elect from the corners of the earth and he physically comes to earth. Now keep your place here because we're coming back and turn over for a minute to Matthew chapter 24. Because that will help us make the distinction even more. In Matthew 24, Jesus describes a very, very different set of events. And I want to, just for the sake of brevity and so we don't get too confused here, just read a couple verses. Let's start in verse 15 of Matthew 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Drop down to verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days be cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Drop down to verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will not, excuse me, the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken and then the sign of the son of the man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now a couple details we need to see here first of all he refers to the abomination of desolation that's described in daniel 9 where the in the middle of the tribulation the antichrist who has risen up and has declared himself essentially the leader of the world and has fooled people into believing that he really has their best interests in mind the antichrist will have made a peace covenant and in the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years in, he will break that covenant in a very bold and profound way, and he will desecrate the holy place of God in Jerusalem. And that will start the second three and a half years of the tribulation, which will be much worse and much more profound than the first three and a half years. It actually gets a new name. The second three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. So the first three and a half years... You have judgment, you have the sense of the possibility of peace, you have this world leader rise up, you have people fawn all over him and say, he's the one who has all the answers, he makes a peace covenant, everything one, seems wonderful, and people become very satisfied. But right in the center of that time, he will break the covenant, and literally, I mean this, all hell will break loose. And the great tribulation will then 
begin. And during that time, God will bring 21 different judgments on mankind that are designed to stir man's heart to call on Christ for salvation. But during that time, there will be cataclysmic terror in terms of what's happening in the world. There will be earthquakes, there will be destruction, there will be disasters. Man will show his evil side in a way that he's never shown it before. And people in that time, some people will finally say, we have been secured ourselves, and that's been a fraud and we need a savior and they will turn to Christ. But it will happen after the church has been taken out. Now you come back to the chapter and you see in verses 21 to 29 that he talks about the tribulation. And the text clearly says that it ends with the sun and moon and stars being darkened and the heavens being shaken. And then Christ will appear in the sky, gather believers from one end of the sky to the other. In other words, he's not pulling them off the earth now. He's pulling them from the sky. So this is a distinct difference from what we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4. How do we know that? Throwing a lot of information out at once. How do we conclude that the church, the body of believers who really love the Lord and trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, the ones who are actively looking for His return, how do we know that we will not go through the tribulation and that we will be taken out of the picture before the tribulation occurs. Now, this has been debated by better men than me and better women than me for 2,000 years. And we'll talk a little bit more when we get to the logical part of our study about the reasons why we can know this. But one of the most convincing pieces of evidence that tells us that the church will not be here is what we don't see in the book of Revelation. Between chapter 4 and chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, the church is invisible. When you look at Revelation, and we're not going to turn because we don't have time, but when you look at Revelation, you see chapters 2 and chapter 3 are about the seven churches. Everybody remember that? All right? The seven churches. And the Spirit talks very clearly to the seven churches. And really, in a sense, they represent the state of Christianity. They represent the different levels of maturity and the different levels of love for the Lord. And He warns the churches. Hear now what I'm saying, what the Spirit says. You listen to now, because I'm telling you, this is a picture of the apostolic age. This is the picture of the church age when, when the church is following Jesus Christ and Christ has gone back to heaven. So, church, pay attention. Well, when we get to the end of chapter 3. He talks about Laodicea. He says, you make me sick because you're lukewarm. You don't care. You're indifferent. You just just think you're saved, but there's nothing going on there. There's no passion. There's no heart. There's nothing in your mind. Chapter 3 ends, the book of Revelation. And there's not one picture of the church from that point on until chapter 19. All during that time, the church is invisible. And as the Spirit reveals to John a very stark and very horrific picture of the tribulation, it concludes with Christ's literal return to the earth. And there's no mention of the church whatsoever. Details are given about man's rejection of God 
and Antichrist and 144,000 evangelists and Russia and China and the Islamic countries getting together to try to wipe Israel off the map and the unification of governments and the battle of Armageddon and the Lord's victory. But there's nothing about those who have trusted Christ as Savior other than one passage in chapter 7 which pictures believers in heaven worshiping God. Now, we need to understand that because in terms of shaping our theology, we can say, well, if Christ is coming back for believers, there are multiple possibilities of when that could be. And what is the difference between the rapture and the second coming? And how do we understand this? But we have to look at the argument of silence. The church is invisible right after he gave two chapters of instruction to the church. And then the only time we see the church, the only time we see us, believers, we're standing in white robes around the throne of God praising Him. While God is dealing with the mess that's on earth. Now Israel is dealt with very prominently in chapter 7 to chapter 12 of Revelation because during the tribulation, the Lord is still holding them accountable for the rejection of Christ. So he will deal with Israel. He still has plans for Israel. He still will restore Israel. But during the tribulation, for the most part, there is a physical judgment on the sin of the world. And that is the means by which the Lord will prove his absolute authority over man and his unquestioned eternal victory over the devil. That's what the tribulation will be about. God will prove once and for all, so nobody has any doubt, I am God. And he will prove that the devil lost, that he won, that Christ's victory was secure, and God will reign forever. That's what will be proved during the tribulation. So how do we know that this could begin at any minute? What happens next? If this guy had been right yesterday, if Christ had returned yesterday, what would happen next? Well, if this can happen at any moment, that means the return of Christ is imminent. And in this passage that you're in, Matthew 24, and in Mark 13, which is the accompanying passage, and back in our text in 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus gives very specific details about what the world environment will be like prior to the tribulation. Stay in Matthew 24. Let's go verse to verse. In verse 6 of 24, it says there will be wars And rumors of wars. Certainly that is true today. Right now, there are 19 African countries, 14 Asian countries, 9 European countries, 7 Middle Eastern countries, and 4 countries in North and South America in some kind of war. Whether it be internal civil war, whether it be factions against rebels, or whether it be war against each other. Right now, do the math real quick, there are 53 countries in the world that are in some sort of a war. So wars and rumors of wars, absolutely. There's no question about it. In verse 7, it says there will be famines and earthquakes. Certainly we have seen that over the last few months in Haiti and in Japan and in Africa and Sudan. We have seen earthquakes. We've seen tsunamis. We've seen terrible famine. We've seen oppression of people. Certainly we know that that's true. In verse 9, it says there will be persecution of Christians. That is prevalent in many countries this morning. There are at least 51 countries this morning where the Bible is outlawed and the gospel is rejected. So we know that Christians this morning, even as we speak in the comfort of our Marriott, there are Christians this morning that are being persecuted for their faith. 
They're Christians that are hiding underground, having church. Now I heard the other day that the ministers in China are starting to become bold and meeting together with the government and saying, we want to be recognized as a church. Can you imagine the boldness of that? We struggle, oh, it's raining outside, I don't know if I'm going to come to church. They can be killed for holding a Bible, but they're going to the communist government and saying, we want you to recognize us. In verse 11, it says there will be false prophets who will arise and mislead many. We saw that just in the last few days with this man who denied the words of Christ. In verse 37, it says it will be like the days of Noah, which we can't deny is true today. But the openness of sin, the promotion of vice, the redefining of marriage, the diminishing influence of the church, the rise of abortion, all this going on, this is the days of Noah. And then there's one more fact in verse 36. Jesus himself says, no man knows the day or hour when I will return. Now we heard that quoted a lot over the last 24 hours. We even heard it quoted by mainstream media. Well, Jesus said no one knows the day or hour. Okay, you just acknowledged he's alive. A. B, you acknowledged he's coming back. And C, you just quoted scripture. Isn't that cool? No one knows the day or hour. Now, why is that important verse? It's an important verse because it creates significant problems for the belief that the rapture either comes in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. Because in both cases, we could use simple math to determine the date of the rapture. Stay with me now. The mid-trib view that Christ comes back in the middle, that the tribulation starts, and then Christ returns for his own, and that Antichrist breaks the covenant, and everything goes crazy for three and a half years. The mid-trib view holds that, but we could, as believers, watch Antichrist starting to set up everything and coming to the place of breaking the covenant, and we would be able to conclude, well, Christ is about to come because he comes right as the covenant's broken. And a post-trib view struggles because when we see Antichrist, if we're going to go to the tribulation, when we see Antichrist break the covenant, we could say, okay, we know from Scripture that that's right in the dead center of the tribulation. So according to Daniel's prophecy, all we have to do is count out three and a half years. So if we include the leap year, 1,246, 1,248 days from right now, Christ will come back. But, but verse 36 says, nobody knows the day or hour. So there are structural problems with a mid-trib view and a post-trib view. And yet I know wonderful believers, I'm not being critical, I know wonderful believers that hold those views. But there are problems with that. Now the same would be true with the view that the rapture and the second coming are the same event. Because Jesus Christ says in Matthew 24, my second coming will be the end of the tribulation. So if the rapture and the tribulation are the same event, same problem, we still could count out that's when Jesus is coming. We could mark the calendars and get ready and be confident that that was going to be the day. So what do we conclude? We conclude that the only view we know that fits with Christ's words and the biblical teaching is that the rapture precedes the tribulation. And, looking back at 1 Thessalonians 4 for a minute, let's turn back there for a moment. Thank you for turning. If we look back at 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus says it's going to be unexpected. 
it's going to be like a thief in the night. Nobody sits around planning for a thief, right? At 3.30 in the morning, I wasn't sitting there eating my Fruit Loops going, can't wait for that thief to show up. I think I'll unlock the door for them. There, okay, thief, welcome. I had no expectation. When somebody breaks into your house, you don't know what's coming. He says, my return will be like a thief of the night. People will be unexpected. People will be shocked. They'll be surprised that it's actually happening. And what will lead into this is people will be deluded by the thoughts that there's hope and there's peace and there's safety. Another argument against it being after the tribulation. But instead, Jesus says, destruction will come quickly and severely. So what we do know is that any prophecies of the actual date, any prophecies using weird math, we multiply 7 times 46 times 321 times pi, square it, divide by 12. Any of that is off. Remember in 1988, somebody wrote a book that said 88 reasons why Jesus will come back in 1988. Christians panicked. There was no way to predict that. The same guy who predicted yesterday, predicted in 1994. Oh, Jesus is coming back in 1994. And he put a question mark at the end. Like, oh, maybe. Listen, he is discredited now. There is no funny math that we can do. That contradicts the words of Christ, and it cannot be right. How many know if you contradict the words of Christ, it's not right? He says, no one knows the day. No one knows the hour. You can't predict it. You can't do anything to say, this is when it will happen. All you can do is prepare. Now, the fact that we don't know the actual time is intentional on God's part, but it shouldn't lull us into complacency or lack of expectation. Look back at verse Thessalonians 4, 3, or excuse me, 5, 3. Because that verse tells us, be prepared. And even though right now the world thinks that we're very uncredible, it should cause us to be increasingly aware of just how imminent Christ's return really is and just how ripe the conditions are for his return. As we're going to study in a moment, there's a rapid escalation taking place in our world that's pointing to the possibility of the events of the tribulation actually being realized. And 20 years ago, we literally could not have said that with as much confidence. 20 years ago, we did not realize at the time that, that there wasn't enough in place for this to happen. But now there is absolutely no question that the world is more prepared and more ready to see the events of Scripture fulfilled exactly as they've been written. So what I want to do in the next couple minutes is look at some of the logical reasons that remind us that everything is set for Christ's return. The first one is the ongoing lack of peace in the Middle East. And this was highlighted and exacerbated this week by the president's policy speech. Now, the difference and the dispute between Jews and Arabs is as old as Abraham. It started with his impatient disobedience, him listening to someone else say, you need to shortchange and short-circuit the plan of God. God made a promise to you that you'd have a son through Isaac, uh, son th by me, through I and he'd be named Isaac. But, but forget that. It's not happening fast enough. I'm barren. Go, go sleep with my maid, and, and, and it'll, it'll happen that way. And we have Ishmael, who's the father of the Arabs. And then 
Abraham gets it right, and we see Isaac born, and from day one, there's tension there. And that tension is still carrying through to the hostility that we see now. The dispute over the Holy Land is just as old as this. Even though we clearly see Scripture define the physical boundaries of Israel as God promised to Abraham. But I thought one of the most telling quotes of the week was something I saw on the front page of MSNBC online. After the present pretty much offended everybody. And the conclusion of MSNBC was, there's a sense that peace is less at hand. That phrase stuck out with me. There's a sense that peace is less at hand. Of course it is. There's not going to be peace. The instability and fracture will only continue because both sides want something that will not happen. And it all centers on that tiny little city of Jerusalem. If you stood in Jerusalem today, you would be stunned how small it is. You would go, that's it? All of the world is fighting over this? Why? It's an inhospitable place in the middle of a desert with no real water supply and it sits up on a little mountain and it, and it feels like the old days. You walk through the city of Jerusalem, it's 2,000 years ago. There's no difference. And you say to yourself, everybody's fighting about this and then you realize, yes, because Scripture says they're going to. The Palestinians are demanding that Israel should give back the land that Israel won in the Six Days War in 1967. That land includes the Golan Heights, which is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It includes the West Bank, which surrounds Jerusalem. And it includes East Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount is. Now the question comes, why in the world should Israel give back that land? And if they do, how will it possibly bring peace? The leader of Iraq has already said that he wants to erase Israel from existence. Most of the Arab nations refuse to even recognize Israel's right to exist. So how is giving more land to them going to make the peace process better? All it will do will embolden them to want more and give them the confidence and the impetus to push even farther. And they'll get closer in so they can shoot handheld missiles into Jerusalem and destroy everybody. That will not solve the issue. And we're not even mentioning the fact that Jerusalem is sacred to the Lord and he promised it to the Jews and he said, I will reign there myself for a thousand years. So what we can understand is that Israel will not compromise on Jerusalem. And the Spirit is holding back any annexing of Jerusalem away from the Jews. Now, we need to get that clarity. Now, this comes at a time... And I, I'm not trying to be political this morning. I hope you get my purpose here. This comes at a time when Israel needs its main ally, the United States. But the president is backing down from supporting them. And then he goes on to audaciously demand that they retreat from the land that's rightfully theirs. I tried to think of a parallel of this. It would be like Valerie Putin of Russia saying to us, you need to give back the northeast to the British. What? Boston and New York and Philadelphia? You want us to let the British now own that? What are you, crazy? We won that. But that's what the world is saying. That's what our president is saying to Israel. Give back that land. It's not yours. 
Well, we won at the war. Yeah, but, but you should give it back. Do you know that Israel is twice the size of Rhode Island? It is surrounded by 22 hostile Arab nations with 640 times her size with 60% of the population. But Israel is called expansionist. I'm telling you right now, Israel will never do that. How do we know the rapture is going to come? Because God is still going to deal with this issue. Second logical reason why the rapture is going to come is the pervasiveness of technology. From iPhones to tracking to cameras recording everything we do to the push for national ID cards to implantable biochips. I'm not trying to be one of those wacky people you hear on late night TV. I'm just telling you, this, this is mainstream technology that is being talked about in the news. This is not some weird idea that's out there, oh, put biochips in us. Listen, they're talking about doing that. I was watching, uh, show my age here, I, I happened to flip on the TV the other day and I caught part of an old episode of Hawaii Five-0. You remember Hawaii Five-0? And, and McGarrett went to some house and got beat up or something and I was amazed because the phone lines had been cut and he had no way to call anybody. And I thought, that's not that long ago. He had no idea what to do because he didn't have a phone. Now, they still caught the bad guy. Isn't that amazing? They weren't dependent on technology the way we are there now. And it literally made me wish for a time with less technology. But we've embraced it all so fully that there will never be a turning back. And the net result of that is an increasing loss of privacy. It is shocking how quickly and how willingly we give up our rights and our privacy for the sake of convenience. And it's not going to stop. In fact, there will be very little resistance. Isn't it amazing how quickly all that hubbub about the iPhone tracking died down? Have you heard anything about it the last two weeks? It was like, wait a second. They're, they're watching what I'm doing. They know where I am. Oh, well, I got my iPhone. And I got my apps. And I can do whatever I want. And I can find a restaurant by, by scrolling. But they know where you are. Well, that's okay. There will be very little resistance. Because we have been conditioned to want things now with as little effort as possible. And hear me, I'm saying this out of love. It is born out of a self-centered, desire-based way of thinking that doesn't want to wait. My son was on the front row. We were riding in the car the other night. And out of the blue, he says, my generation is, has no patience. I thought, that's exactly right. And guess who taught it to you? I want it now. I had to wait 30 seconds in the Taco Bell line. Come on, let's go. Speed it up, Skippy. Let's go. I want my, I want my burrito. Come on. In the restaurants, they actually have a clock how quickly you get through the drive-thru because heaven forbid we wait five minutes for a double-decker taco. Everything must be now. I want to be able to watch TV anywhere in my house. If I'm taping in my den, I want to be able to walk into my bedroom and click unpause, and there's my show. I, nothing restricted. I want it all. Think about how technology will be utilized by the enemy 
to broadcast his agenda. And to dismiss the facts of the rapture because we know any image can be altered. And the truth has a short shelf life for people who don't believe it. So there will be people that capture the rapture, I think, on video. Be somebody with a cell phone. What, what is that? And quickly, through technology, it will be dismissed. One more logical reason for the rapture. Right now, our voices raise concerns about secularism and fight for what is right. But imagine how much easier it will be for the events of the tribulation to take place if Christians are gone. If Antichrist was to rise up tomorrow and demand that everybody take his mark on their hand or on their foreheads, biblical Christians would recognize what was going on, and I pray we would strongly oppose it. But if our voices are absent, how much easier will it be for him to execute his plan because it's more convenient? When I pull up to the gas station, there's a little squiggly box and it says, hold your iPhone or hold your smartphone up to that, and it'll download an app for you. When I open up my USA Today, there's a little squiggly box that says, hold your iPhone up to that, and you can download an app that will give you up-to-date news. What will hinder the Antichrist from saying, you know what, we can make this so easy. Just put my number on your hand, and you'll be able to do whatever you want. How much easier will it be for you to buy gas? You just come up and hold that up and it'll recognize it and scan it and you can get your gas. Now, it's logical that Christians would have to be silent for the world to stay on the path that it's on. No doubt we've been too silent and too soft as churches because we've become biblically uneducated. We've become focused on relevance and acceptance by the world. But just think how quickly things will spiral out of control if there's an almost complete absence of biblical teaching. So there are only two ways to conclude this. Either there will be a worldwide extermination of Christians, which the Bible says nothing about, and which would be hard to fathom in this age of 24-7 news or the church will be gone for antichrist and the devil to execute their plan the church has to be gone and what will happen as a result of that is it will open up a path for islam to push forward more aggressively and without biblical christians to warn about that there will be an opportunity for even more forcible methods of conversion but islam doesn't need forcible methods of conversion right now because it's already finding traction without the rapture even happening most of Europe now is drawn to that. Sharia law is in parts of the world right now. It is finding latitude. The path is already being set for what will happen when we're gone. Now, that's a fast tour, isn't it? But let's hear, let's go back one more time to 1 Thessalonians 4. Because now that we have at least a cursory understanding of what we know and are to expect. Let's finish this morning, just in the next couple minutes. Thank you for listening so well. Let's look back at 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and let's see what we're to do as we wait for Christ and we look for Christ. 
as those, 2 Timothy says, who love Christ's appearing. I hope this morning you love Christ's appearing. I hope you are just saying, I can't wait. I just can't wait till I see him. Look at chapter 4, verse 18. It says, as we wait, we're to comfort one another with these words. In other words, don't fear. Don't panic. Don't be worried. Don't be scared. Again, this reinforces that if we love and trust the Lord, we will be delivered by His grace from the tribulation. God is a loving, merciful God who secures His children for all eternity at the cost of His own sacrifice. And I have to believe He will bless those who have persevered in their faith and stood firm for Him. His deliverance of us will be another witness to the world that Christ is Savior and salvation is only through faith in Him. When we go, when we're gone, the world will have to conclude something because you don't have millions of people just disappear and nobody notices. It will reinforce those who have put their faith in Christ have put their faith in the right thing, the only method of salvation, and Christ has delivered them. Second, what you see in chapter 5 or 6, it tells us to be alert and sober. What does that mean? It means not distracted, not indifferent, not unaware, but clear-minded, ready, and prepared. No one knows the day or hour, and while it didn't happen yesterday, it doesn't mean it can't happen today. Just because May 21, 2011 wasn't the day, doesn't mean it can't be today. We used to sing the old hymn, What If It Were Today? I looked up the words last night in an old hymn book. Anybody know what a hymn book is? Jesus is coming to earth again. What if it were today? Coming in power and love to reign. What if it were today? Coming to claim his chosen bride, all the redeemed and purified over the whole earth scattered wide. What if it were today? They don't write songs like this anymore. Satan's dominion will then be o'er. Oh, that it were today. Sorrow and sighing will be no more. Oh, that it were today. Then shall the dead in Christ arise, caught up to meet him in the skies. When shall these glories meet our eyes? What if it were today? Faithful and true would he find us here if he should come today. Watching in gladness and not in fear if he should come today. Signs of his coming multiply. Morning light breaks in eastern sky. Watch for the time is drawing nigh. What if it were today? Then the chorus. Glory, glory, joy to my heart will bring. Glory, glory, when we shall crown him king. Glory, glory, haste to prepare the way. Glory, glory, Jesus will come someday. Do you have that confidence this morning? Do you know for sure that if he were to appear, you'd be ready? Is your heart glad that he's coming back soon? Get the last instruction in chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. He says... For those of you who have obtained salvation, encourage each other, build each other up in the truth that we have escaped wrath and live with Christ. You know, the Spirit impressed upon my heart at 3.45 in the morning as I ate Fruit Loops in my dark kitchen. I mean this very seriously, that we must teach our children about the reality of His return. 
we have been given an open opportunity to say to them, listen, I know you heard about this guy who predicted the world was going to end. It didn't happen. Let me tell you why it didn't happen. Let me tell you what we know about Scripture. And let me tell you, I want you to be ready. It provides a perfect opportunity for us to share our faith so that they will know him and so they will be ready to see him and so he will receive them as his own. Not only do we have a great responsibility to share the gospel with others, but it is what we do in our homes that is vital. So our children can have the same confidence that we have that when he comes and he's in the air and we rise to meet him, that they'll be with us. We don't know the day or hour. We do know that we can expect it. So as we look at the times around us and study his words and look for his preparing, we are called to prepare. What if it were today? Would you be ready? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the complete confidence that we have that your word is true and that you have said you will come back for us. We thank you that we can have confidence in that. We thank you that there is truth and security in your word. You have never spoken an untruth. And Christ has said, I will come back for you. I will meet you in the air and I will take you to the place I've prepared for you. Lord, this morning, as we've tried to decipher through all this information, I pray that your spirit has taught us and instructed us in what we need to know. And Lord, I pray that it has stirred our hearts to be ready. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know the confidence of faith in you, that this is all new to them, that they don't know what this means, I pray right now you'd speak to their heart and turn their life around, that you would cause them to cry out to you, Lord, I understand, I want to know you, I want to be secure. Lord, save me. Father, for those of us that do know you, may our confidence be firm and resolute. And Lord, as we watch the events of the world this morning, which are honestly just very frightening, May we not be complacent. May we not be drunk with ourselves. But may we be sober and alert and ready for your return. Lord, it may be today, maybe tomorrow, maybe a year from now. We don't know. But we do know that you will come back. And we praise you for that. We put our faith and our hope in you alone. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.